Today on the Tove Podcast, we welcome Dr. Seth Postel. Seth is a Jewish follower of Yeshua who's married and has three children. He's currently serving as the academic dean of Israel College of the Bible in the beautiful city of Netanya, Israel. Dr. Postel has a PhD in Hebrew Bible with an emphasis on the Pentateuch. He's also working on a second PhD in Hebrew Bible at Bar Ilan University. He's authored several publications, including Adam as Israel, Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus, and several articles in the wonderful Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. In addition, Dr. Postel has translated the book of Genesis for the Tree of Life version of the Bible. He also serves as a lay leader of a multi-ethnic congregation in the city of Petak Tikva, Israel. Today, Dr. Postel shares some of his story about how he came to faith in the Jewish Messiah, and we will dive into the word together on the Tove Podcast. You are listening to the Tove Podcast. I want to start at the beginning, Seth, uh, because uh, it's my understanding that you grew up in a Jewish home. Correct. So just in terms of family backgrounds, my mother's, my mother's family was from Poland, and my grandfather had, uh, I believe, 12 brothers and sisters. Wow. Some of them came to the United States, I think, in the early 1900s. The rest stayed in Poland. And uh, other than one first cousin, all my mom's aunts and uncles and cousins were killed in the Holocaust. Mm. Uh, and we actually had one, my mom had one first cousin who uh, act, he came to Israel to box in the Jewish Olympics back, the first Jewish Olympics in 1932, went back to Poland, came again in 1936 to box, stayed in what was then Palestine. His parents begged him to come back to Poland, to civilization. A few years later, they were writing him letters, begging begging him to get them out, and he couldn't do that. So, so on my mom's side of the family, Polish Jews, that uh, a few of the family members came to Brooklyn. On my father's side of the family, uh, from, uh, from Odessa, Ukraine, mm-hmm. and they immigrated to Canada. And then my dad, when he was seven years old, they moved to Brooklyn. So my mom and dad both grew up, grew up in Brooklyn. Which is the other holy land, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, at that time and even today, there's many Jewish people. But yeah, when they, when they grew up, um, you know, they grew up in a very, very Jewish area. And, uh, you know, they grew up with the holidays, but they were not religious Jews. Mm-hmm. But of course, um, Jewish identity was a very significant part of our family. And in fact, my father, and I'm sad to say this, but my father, his earliest childhood memory of meeting Christians was he was about seven years old and he was surrounded by, um, you know, those who called themselves Christians and they were older than him and they literally beat him bloody. They, they caught him and they beat him up and chanted at him, Christ killer. Mm. So my dad went back to my grandmother and said, you know, who's Christ? Did we kill him? And, and so that was my, my father's first exposure to, to Christianity, which is sad. My mom and dad were both on their second marriage when they had me. And so I have 
a brother and a sister from my dad's first marriage and two sisters from my mom's first marriage. And then I'm the only one from their second marriage. So I'm kind of the, I was the surprise, but we grew up in New Jersey in an area that was um, 50% Jewish, 50% other. Um, I had two close friends. My very best friend was Catholic. And my other close friend was Jehovah's Witness, hmm. and uh, which was really interesting. Now, in my school, however, um, and on my block, we only had in our neighborhood, I only know of two Gentile families on our whole street. We were, everybody was Jewish around us. Um, in my school, my elementary school, uh, I would say 50, 60, perhaps, yeah, probably 50 or 60 percent of my friends were Jewish. But oddly enough, um, my closest friends were not. Mm. I had Jewish friends, of course, and we would hang out. But at a young age, I was, I was, I started going to Hebrew school. Now, mm-hmm. my mom and dad, uh, for whatever reason, were not comfortable in, in our, in, in the synagogue in our town, right? So they would send me a half an hour away uh, to an, a reform synagogue every week for Jewish school. Mm. And so that's, you know, we grew up every year, just about every, every Passover, we would go to Brooklyn where my grandparents were living and my aunt and uncle and cousins, and we would celebrate Passover. And, um, so my exposure to Jesus actually, like I said, my best friend and his mother actually was my babysitter. So, you know, I, I knew about the Catholic Jesus. I had been, he was, he was a devout Catholic and I think he still is actually. And his mother, as a as my babysitter, she would actually bring me if you know on on holidays. Sometimes they would bring me to go to mass. Now, the reason that my mom and dad let me do it is because they never thought of thought of it as something that you know. Obviously, there was no intentions to make me a Catholic, and I was just my mom and dad were working or whatnot, and so so you know I had some exposure to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. But I, I had no idea whatsoever that Jesus was Jewish. That was mm. just totally not a, not even something in under my, you know, it just wasn't even there. My mom and dad, you know, obviously they were from the generation of the Holocaust. So they, they had those traumas, but they didn't talk much about it. And so, you know, I didn't grow up hating crosses or hating hating Christianity, so to speak. It was just, it was just, um, you know, I, I liked Christmas. Mm-hmm. I, there was something beautiful about the lights. My friend and I, we used to have a competition wherever we would drive. He would get one side of the car, I'd get the other, we'd count the lights. And, you know, whoever counted the most houses with lights, right, you win the contest. And, you know, I, I enjoyed Christmas. I enjoyed Christmas music. Uh, but it was never part of our home. It was it was always you go out to a friend's house to celebrate Christmas, or I used to, they used to let me color Easter eggs with them and they would buy me a, a chocolate Easter bunny. But, but again, it was, it, it never, it, it was fun. There was, there was nothing religious about it for me at all because I knew that we were Jewish and this was just something that this was culturally something for somebody else, but they, were very gracious and kind to let me be a part of it. And so I actually have incredibly good memories of Christmas. I have incredibly <laughs> good memories of Easter. And, 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 I, and, and I know I, I grew up knowing how to celebrate it 
how an, a Catholic family from the Northeast, a devout Catholic family, celebrated it. You know, they had the Lent calendar. They used to, you know, every once in a while I'd go there and they'd, if I slept over, I'd get to put another piece of, of, of Lent on their calendar. And so, but that was, that was it. There was nothing. And, and again, we grew up, I knew, you know, my culture, I, you know, I was learning Hebrew, learning to read Hebrew for my bar mitzvah. Um, I knew about the holidays. Uh, we didn't, we didn't talk much about God in our family. We didn't, you know, that was just not an, not a topic. Okay. So where was the turning point? So actually the turning point began with my mother. That was, that was where it all began. She started going to um, something called OA, Overeaters Anonymous. It's a 12-step program. And, you know, there you actually, and I, I know very little about it, so I just know it from my mom, but there's where you define your, your own higher power. It's crucial to the program that you have a higher power, mm. right? Whether it's the flying spaghetti monster or not, but you need a, you need a higher power. And my mom met a lady, um, a Jewish lady, who started talking to her about her higher power, Jesus. And my mom got very upset. How can your higher power be Jesus? I mean, that's, you know, that's a betrayal. That's, that's you, you know, you cannot be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And so they started a relationship where uh, she started to take my mom to different Bible studies. My mom... Um, you know, emotionally was put off, intellectually was curious. Mm -hmm. She started to read the Bible. Uh, and I and obviously, whenever a Jewish person starts to read the Bible on their own, that's always a good thing. Mm. And so, you know, she started reading, I think probably for the first time in her life, started reading the, you know, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and um, eventually started to read the New Testament. And over a period of, of, of serious struggling, uh, she ended up, um, actually as a result of a serious illness I had, um, prayed, just, just prayed because I was, you know, I was, there wasn't a divine healing. It was more <laughs> just total peace mm. in the midst of a storm. And so my mom was at my bedside. I was very sick and she prayed and, and suddenly she said that a peace came over her uh, and she said, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, please show me. Mm. And uh, she didn't say, help my son. She said, if you're the Messiah, I need help because I'm in turmoil. And what happened to her is she suddenly fell asleep. And, you know, for a mom to fall asleep while your son is really, really ill is, I mean, you know, you're, you're a new dad mm -hmm. and you've, you've, got, you've got to witness what, what moms are like mm -hmm. in the vigilance. And so she fell asleep and then when, you know, I woke her up at some point needing to go to the hospital and she woke up with just this peace mm. that everything was going to be okay. And, uh, in any case, she, she came to faith and she, she shared this with my father and my father cried. Mm. He said, I, th I thought that I married a Jew. How could you betray us? How could you, you know, he, he, he cried. And then he basically said to her, you, you can believe what you want, but do not speak to our son. Mm. Stay away from our son. Mm. And so over the next couple of years, you know, I knew that something was up. I don't know if my mom was selling drugs or she was doing something illegal, right? There was kind of this 
so whatever she was doing, we weren't allowed to talk about it. Um, but I used to hear, interestingly enough, I, I will never forget this. I remember laying in my room, uh, and this was in New Jersey, and early in the mornings, I would hear her listening to Messianic praise music. Mm. Like at the time, there was Lamb and Kol Simcha. You probably have never even heard of these people. <laughs> this is the early. And I just remember enjoying that music. And then she would listen to a speaker on the radio. And, and he had the most captivating voice I had ever heard. A guy that you may never have heard of named Chuck Swindoll. Ah, yes, right? yes. <laughs> And I remember listening to Chuck Swindoll and thinking, wow, what a beautiful voice. I didn't know what he was saying, but I was attracted to his voice. So at some point, my mom was invited to a conference for Jewish believers in Jesus mm. in Pennsylvania and begged my dad to come. She said, you can come and bring your fishing rods and you can go fishing with Seth. You don't need to do anything else but go fishing, but can you come with me? And so we went with her and I remember pulling into the parking lot and I, at the time the cars were very big and very wide. So I was able to lean up and whisper into my dad's ears as we pulled into the parking lot, dad, they're all a bunch of losers. <laughs> he said, how do you know, Seth? I said, there's not a single Cadillac in the parking lot. <laughs> I, re I remember saying uh -huh. that. Honestly, I said that. And uh, anyway, we, we, we were at the, that conference, and it turned out that um, some really good conversations were being had with my dad. And, and I also I remember hearing uh, the song El Shaddai for the first time and getting chill bumps all up and down my back. Mm. And it, that began an openness. And within the next couple months, of it, apparently my father um, could just could not deny the, the evidence. In fact, he said to my mom, okay, I see that you're changed. I see that you're still Jewish. Why do you believe in Jesus? But don't show me the New Testament. And the reason was, obviously, is that we were always taught that the New Testament was for was an anti-Semitic book. And so my mom read to him Isaiah 53, and he got very angry. And he said to her, I told you I didn't want to hear the New Testament. And she said, well, that's our side of the book. Wow. And so you know, within, within a, a short period of time, my father came to faith. And then, and then a couple months after that, I came to faith. Praise the Lord. And so what age was it that you eventually believed in the Lord? So it came in waves, right? And so, you know, the first time that, um, I, I really understood, I was, I was just before my bar mitzvah. Okay. I was 12, 12 and a half. But then I had, you know, I had uh, some pretty stormy teen years, mm -hmm. and it was in my, my mid-teen years that I would say that I understood the gospel. I understood the message of grace, that, you know, that, that Yeshua loves sinners. Mm. And, and it was the love of God that literally transformed my life. Amen. And since then, your life's never been the same. No, it has not. It's been quite a journey. I mean, I've been around the world and back several times. And, yeah. you know, obviously living, living where I live now, never thought that I would ever do that. And, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm here. I got to, I served in the, in the army. I was a medic mm -hmm. and met my wife here. And yeah, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about that experience because you come to faith, you grow up, you mature in the faith. And then a point comes where you decide I'm going to move to Israel 
And not only that, but I'm going to serve in the Israel Defense Forces. My question is, and I think a lot of our listeners would want to know, what went into that decision? Was, you know, what, what was going through your mind? And, and then the second part of that question is, what was the experience like? I was in college during the Gulf War. I had not yet moved to Israel, but I was in college in the Gulf War. And I do remember, you know, at the time, the only news, you know, that you, that you had the news stations and it was all they were focusing on, the, the Gulf War. And then they said that scuds were being launched into Israel. And, you know, again, growing up Jewish, my sister had lived in a kibbutz for a couple of years. She wanted to make become a citizen at the time and then decided not to. And I don't know that I ever thought or longed to be back in Israel. It was just, but, but during the Gulf War, as soon as the scuds started being launched, mm-hmm. there was something in me that felt guilty that I was comfortable in a dorm as a, as, as a Jewish person and, and Israel was being attacked. It just it didn't feel right. And, and, that, and I remember having that experience and thinking, if it gets worse, I'm quitting school and I'm going to Israel. I'll do whatever I can to help. Now, obviously, you know, it never panned out. And, you know, um, when I finished school, uh, I had an opportunity to come to Hebrew University. I got accepted at Hebrew University. And there was, um, honestly, there was not even the slightest intention or thought of staying in Israel. Didn't, didn't. It wasn't even there. The thought was to get a master's degree at Hebrew University and go back to the United States. That was all that was in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I just remember getting here and just seeing, seeing life here, seeing the people here. I was very deeply touched by seeing Israeli soldiers. Mm. And they were my age. And they were doing things that I thought were, were amazing, really important. They were... They were, you know, they were risking their lives for the Jewish people, and that did something to me. Mm-hmm. And long story short, um, as a university student, and I, I started to really think about my life here, and it got to the point to where it felt like I couldn't imagine life anywhere else. And that, and that's when I immigrated, and then. Within a half a year, I ended up going to the Israeli army. The funny thing is, is I went into the Israeli army with really bad modern Hebrew. <laughs> so for the first couple months, I really could not understand what my commanders were shouting at me. And there's all sorts of funny stories about me not understanding them. But <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was good for me, and I quickly learned mm, Hebrew. That, wow. was, that, was, that was the way to learn Hebrew, mm. was get shouted at by by, by Israeli commanders, commanders. Yeah, thrown into the deep end exactly. there. Uh, Seth, I want to transition our time now uh, to talk a little bit, actually a lot, about the Bible. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a PhD in Hebrew Bible with an emphasis in the Pentateuch. And uh, I know that I've benefited both from your writings as well as your teachings. And I wondered if we can actually open up a passage together. And if we could just hear you extrapolate that passage. And I thought what might be best, unless you have a different passage in mind, is for us to take a look at the Balaam Oracles, which for our listeners out there, you can find the Balaam Oracles in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. And I just want to read a portion of that, just a couple verses here that you've highlighted in your article in the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. And that is, 
First, chapter 22, verse 6 says this, Please come and put a curse on these people for me, because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. And this is one of the most fascinating and strange stories in the Bible. And to remind our listeners, what we have in this story is that this Balaam character is summoned by this king, and he takes a donkey to get there. And midway in his ride, the donkey ends up rebuking him. Of course, it's the spirit of the Lord ultimately through the donkey, but he is rebuked by a donkey. Uh, what you have written here, Dr. Postel, is the story of Balaam is a theologically loaded passage. It is at times perplexing and contains one of the strangest stories in the Old Testament, the story of a talking donkey. And then you ask the question, was Balaam a good man and true prophet determined to speak God's word? Or was he a villainous sorcerer deserving to be despised? Since he was responsible for leading Israel astray, why should we consider his oracles about a star from Jacob trustworthy? And how, for that matter, can Balaam's seven discourses be considered scripture? And so I wondered if we could just dive into this passage. I've kind of set the scene of this story. Can you extrapolate it for us and give us some insights here that we might not see in the English language? If I could just kind of pan out, and I would just simply say one of the things that I think is so crucial to understanding the theology or the message of the Torah, the, the five books of Moses, is the theme of blessing. Hmm. Uh, if you miss that, you really miss, I think, kind of like the theological artery of the book. So if you think about the very first chapter of Genesis, the first two chapters, um, God is blessing creation. He blesses the animals. He blesses the first people, and he blesses the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Okay? The Torah ends just before Moses dies with the blessing of Moses, Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 34 is kind of like what you would call the epilogue. It's the end of the book. It's kind of tying it into the next, the next, you know, into Joshua. So what's really interesting is if you look at the kind of the meat around, if you look at the framework of the Torah, it's, it's about blessing. Uh, and, and so Genesis 1 and 2, blessing. Deuteronomy 33, blessing. The whole of the storyline is embraced by blessing. However, what's the antithesis of blessing? Curses. Mm -hmm. So Genesis three, kind of, you get the, you know, the, what's it called, the stick in the in the wheel, the stick in the spokes, right? Mm. So the conflict then becomes, you know, this disobedience or lack of faith that results in curses, okay? And that's 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 Genesis three. Well, if you look at the where the word curses find is is cursed is find most often is in Deuteronomy twenty eight. And so what you have is a tire, like a, a, a bicycle tire with an inner tube. Mm. So the inner tube is curses for disobedience mm -hmm. at the introduction and conclusion of the Torah. But praise God, the curses don't have the last word mm. because the larger frame is blessing. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, how does God reestablish the blessing on creation that he intended from the beginning? Mm. And so he chooses a chosen line. And so obviously you've got uh, Genesis 3.15 and, you know, there's a conflict between 
the, these lines, the seed of the serpent, I would argue, in the context of this unfolding story is not real snakes, mm-hmm. but actually people that are hostile to the plan of God. And so in Cain would be a seed of the serpent, right? Um, you've got Canaan would be a seed of the serpent. Mm. So God's purpose is blessing. And so then he chooses Abraham and in Genesis chapter 12, the end of chapter 11. And interesting enough, it says that God, you know, God chooses him to be a blessing. He's going to bless him and be a blessing to the whole earth. So really the, the contours of the story, the question that you want to ask is, how does God bring this blessing in? And it, it really hinges on a family and it hinges on a, on a seed. Mm-hmm. Okay, that starts in Genesis 3.15, but you've got to trace this trail. So now we come to Numbers 22 through 24. The major theme of this section is blessing and curses. So as soon as you see this, you're actually in the heart or the, you're in the thick of the plot. And so when, when Balak says to his messengers to tell Balaam, you know, I know that whom you bless is blessed and whom you curse is cursed, it's clear that the reader immediately realizes, wait a minute, that's God's job. That's not Balaam's job. That's God's job. And you're also immediately aware of the promises to Abraham. Those who curse you will be cursed. Yeah. Cursed. Mm-hmm. Those who bless you will be blessed. But remarkably, in the story of Balaam, you know, the, the blood, you know, what God says to Abraham, those who curse you will be cursed. The crazy thing about the Balaam narrative is his, he doesn't even get the curses out. <laughs> right. You know, every time he tries to say blessed, right? So, so really, what's remarkable about this passage is the extent to which you have the theme of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, and here in a very clear, in fact, I would say one of the most clear ways in all of Scripture, you have an, a messianic understanding that. The Abrahamic covenant will come to fruition ultimately with the coming of an individual king Mm. who will defeat Israel's enemies and be the key to blessing, right? The key to blessing. So that said, believe it or not, I understand that the the key to the whole passage, the key that unlocks, unlocks the Balaam narratives and oracles is actually the story with Balaam and his donkey. Mm. That is where you need to look to kind of get how things are going to unfold. And so I can, I can look there really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. If we can go ahead and read that portion for our listeners, I think that would be helpful. Okay. I'm there. So verse 21, when he got up and got up in the morning, Balaam saddled, I'm reading from verse 21. When he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the officials of Moab. But God was incensed that Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path. It's interesting. In Hebrew, it's it's a she-donkey, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So she turned off the path and went into the field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. He 
the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's Balaam's foot against it, so he hit her once again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the left or the right. When When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam, so he became furious and beat the donkey with a stick. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she asked Balaam, What have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? Balaam answered uh, answered the donkey, You made me look like a fool. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. But the donkey said, Am I not the donkey you've ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? No, he replied. Then the angel of the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam knelt and bowed with his face to the ground. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because what you are doing is evil in my sight. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you But now, by now and let her live. And so I want to kind of jump ahead to Numbers 24.10. Numbers 24.10, I want you to notice this is an important passage. Then Balaam, Balak became furious with Balaam struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to put a curse on my enemies, but instead you have blessed them these three times. Mm. Okay. So here's here's what I'd like to share in a nutshell, because we could probably spend hours, and I'm not sure that I have hours, mm-hmm. but it's an amazing passage. So I would love your your listeners to read the article. But here's what's really amazing. Just like Balaam tried to get around the angel of the Lord three times in order to curse Israel, Mm. so Balak tried through Balaam, right, to get around God's protection to curse Israel, and he tried three times. Mm. Okay, that's very, very, very crucial. So what, what ends up happening in these two passages is that in kind of a humorous way, Balaam is trying to force his donkey who sees very clearly, a donkey who God actually opens her mouth to speak, right? And he's pushing his donkey. What ends up happening in the following passage then is that Balak is just like Balaam. Mm. And Balaam is just like the donkey. Mm. And so just like God opens the donkey's mouth to speak truth, God opens Balaam's mouth to speak truth. Now, what's significant about this is that you actually then end up with a solution as to why we can listen to Balaam, why we should listen to his oracles. And that is, normally, I don't trust what donkeys would tell me. (laughs) Right? Right. Nor, nor normally, but if God opens the donkey's mouth, mm-hmm. at that point, it doesn't matter who the messenger is. The message is divine. Mm. And so Balaam is the donkey in this passage. Now, 
What's really significant in this reading, and I just want to show you a key verse, mm -hmm. okay? The key verse is Numbers 22, verse 31. It says, Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord. Remarkably, remarkably, when you go to Numbers 24, which is Balaam's third attempt to curse Israel, mm -hmm. his third attempt, it says something very significant. In 24, 3 and 4, it says, and he proclaimed his poem, or yeah, his poem, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are opened, the oracle of one who hears the sayings of God, who sees a vision uh, from the Almighty, who falls into a trance with his eyes. And the word here for eyes uncovered is the exact same Hebrew phrase for God opened Balaam's eyes. Mm. In other words, we know that this is Balaam's third attempt to curse Israel, just like it was his third attempt to get around the angel of the Lord with the donkey. Mm -hmm. God supernaturally opens Balaam's eyes in the previous narrative to see Israel's mighty defender. Mm. And now suddenly on the third occasion, God opens Balaam's eyes and he suddenly sees the Messiah. Mm. And so I can read a little bit more, starting in verse 5, Numbers 24, 5. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwellings, Israel. They stretch out like, a, like river valleys, like gardens beside a stream, like aloes the Lord has planted, like cedars beside the water. Now, it's clear that Balaam is seeing a prophetic vision. The language he's already used, in fact, one of the reasons we know that is uh, it says in verse uh, 24, verse 2, mm -hmm. the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So in the other two oracles, the Spirit of the Lord did not come upon him. Now the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and then it says the word in verse 3, the oracle. The word oracle of Balaam, that's a key word. There's six times the word oracle appears in Numbers 24, and that word is is always, almost always, exclusively tied to divine words. Mm. It's, it's a common word in the prophets. Oracle of the Lord, thus says the Lord. So we know that he sees something supernatural because notice it says he's looking at Jacob and their dwellings. He's looking at Israel and he's describing them as if they're in the Garden of Eden, in a place of abundant water. But that cannot be. Why? Because they're in the desert. He just said it's in, in, in the early verses, I think in 24.1 or 2, he set his face to the desert. So he's obviously seeing something supernatural. And then it says this, water will flow from his buckets. Okay, I believe here that it's Israel's buckets. Mm -hmm. And his seed, Israel's seed, Israel's descendant will be by, the, by abundant water. And I would argue here, the seed here is a reference to the Messiah. And in fact, uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, actually identifies this explicitly as this man that will come and rule over the nations. Mm. His king will be greater than Agag, and his kingdom will be exalted. Whose kingdom? This king. 
And then it goes on to say God brought him out of Egypt. Now, so we don't be fooled. This is not talking about Israel coming out Mm -hmm. of Egypt. This is talking about Israel's king. And we know this because in the previous chapter, he uses the same language, only there he says God brought them out of Egypt. And in the context, he's speaking about the historical exodus. Here, he's speaking as a prophet, the words of an oracle about this future king that God will bring out of Egypt. And then notice what it says about this king in verse 9. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him up. Wait a minute, that's exactly the words that Jacob used when he prophesied the coming of the Messiah in Genesis 49, 9. Mm-hmm. So once again, confirmation that he's talking about the Messiah. And then I would say the most significant verse in this passage, those who bless you will be blessed. Who? Who's the you here? It has to be the king he's been talking about. Blessed are those, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And so here we have an explicitly messianic reading of, of the Abrahamic covenant tied to the Messiah. In verse 10, Balak gets upset. And so here are the parting words. And again, this is after the third attempt. His eyes are open. And I want you to notice in verse 14, Balaam says these words. So now I'm going back to my people. But first, let me warn you what these people will do to your people. The Holman Christian Standard says in the future, but actually the Hebrew says in the last days. Mm. In the last days. And then... Here's this open-eyed oracle again. Then he proclaimed his poem, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eyes are open, the oracle of one who hears the sayings of God and has knowledge of the Most High, a knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Lord Almighty. In other words, now he's no longer looking at historical Israel, the Exodus. He's, he's talking about things in the future who falls into a trance with his eyes uncovered. There it is again. And notice what he says. I see him. Who's the him? That's the king he was just speaking about in the third oracle. Mm -hmm. I see him, but not now. Why? Because it's prophecy. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter, a king, will rise from Israel, and he will smash the, for, uh, the forehead of, of Moab, and strike down all the Shethites. Edom will become a possession. Seir will become a possess, possession of his enemies, but Israel will triumph. One who comes from Jacob will rule. He will destroy the city's survivors. And so here we see, I think, again, I could say so much more about this passage, but I find it to be just an amazing passage. And once you notice the parallels between Balaam and his donkey, and Balak and Balaam, suddenly you realize that Balaam is just like the donkey. Mm. He can see things uh, and say things because God's giving him that ability to see and say and speak. And just like in Balaam's third attempt, uh, his eyes were opened when he tried to get around the angel of the Lord. Here we see Numbers 24 is what happens after his third attempt and how he now sees things very open-eyed. And who does he see? He sees the coming of the Messiah. Mm, wow. Well, I think our listeners are going to be supremely blessed uh, by that particular Bible study 
I noticed what you did a lot of there, Seth, was you connected a lot of different portions of Scripture, right? Beginning in all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, moving through Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 12, 49, and so on. The best way to describe that approach to specifically the Pentateuch is a narrative approach. And in my experience growing up, you know, normal Christian guy and going to church, uh, the Pentateuch was looked at primarily as a book of laws, where you had law after law after law, and the purpose was simply to show that we couldn't keep the law. But I've read quite a bit of your material, and what you and, of course, Dr. John Salheimer and uh, quite a few others are stating is that we should actually take a more narrative approach, specifically to the Pentateuch, that it is far more than a book of laws sprinkled with some narrative. Rather, it is a narrative with laws that are interspersed between. And I just wondered, I know that we're running out of time here. Um, can you just comment briefly on how important it is to see the Pentateuch from a narrative approach? Let me tell you how I taught my children to read the Bible. You're going you're to think I'm a bad believer. You may never have me back on your podcast <laughs> again. But let me, this is how I taught my children to read the Bible by watching movies. Hmm. Because intuitively we know when we sit down to watch a movie, you have to watch it in a single sit- setting. And you intuitively know that all the parts are connected. You recognize that that movie has an introduction, it has a body, and it has a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And so your goal, having read or having watched the movie, is to say, given the introduction, the body, and the conclusion, and all the connections, what was the producer trying to tell mm. us? What was the point of that movie? Mm. And I recognize intuitively that I can never take one single scene and interpret it apart from all the other scenes in which it's, it's, it's present. And so, you know, when you look at the Torah... Yes, there are laws. Of course, there are laws in the, in the Torah. There are many laws in the Torah. But interestingly enough, the laws don't come at a single place. So you've got, for instance, Exodus, Exodus 12 is the Passover laws, right? And then you have to wait until Exodus 19 for the, you know, and 20, Exodus 20 for the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And then, interestingly enough, uh, all the all the um, laws explaining sacrifices are not given up at Mount Sinai. They're given in the tabernacle, right? Leviticus 1 through 8. Mm-hmm. And then Israel leaves Mount Sinai in Numbers 10, and they don't get new laws until Numbers 15, right? And so you think, okay, wait a minute. If, if this is a law book, why, why aren't all the laws together, number one? And one of the big issues in Jewish scholarship, interesting enough, in medieval scholarship, was if the Torah is a law book, why doesn't the Torah begin with laws? Mm. Why doesn't the Torah begin in Numbers 12, where Israel gets their first laws? And so even a child reading the Torah will tell you very quickly, there's a storyline. The laws are all coming in the context of a storyline. Mm-hmm. And so I would just simply say that if the genre, if the, if, the, if the Torah genre is a story, 
a narrative, then my goal is to understand the story. Mm-hmm. And of course, I want to understand those laws, but never in isolation from their function in the story. And as soon as you do that, I believe with all my heart that the moment you start to read the Torah as it was given to us and as it's intended, mm-hmm. that it leads you to the Messiah. Mm. And again, that would take a much longer time on this talk show, but uh, one of the books that I published with my colleagues from One for Israel, right, is a book called Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. And it's only about 110, 115 page book that kind of walks people through to see why it's so crucial to read the Torah, the Pentateuch, as a story, because that's what it Mm. is. And when you see that, it's difficult for me to imagine anything else but a message that leads us to the Messiah. And I try to make that point, not simply by reading the New Testament back onto the, onto the, the Pentateuch, but to allow the Pentateuch to tell us its own story. Mm, yeah, wonderful. Well, I do wish that we could spend the next several hours here on the Tove podcast just talking about the Word and talking about your story. Uh, I greatly appreciate your time and, uh, and you sharing your story with us today. I think it's edifying to our listeners. And uh, for those out there uh, who may want to dive deeper into this discussion, uh, specifically on the Pentateuch as uh, being narrative as opposed to just laws, uh, and specifically on really how to read our Bibles. Uh, again, the resources by Dr. Postel are out there. They're, they're online for your purchase. Um, Adam as Israel is, uh, is Dr. Postel's first book. And then the one that he just mentioned is a phenomenal work, which is going to dive down more into this specific issue about the writing of Moses. And it's called Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. And that is exactly what the Messiah himself said. He said that if you really believed Moses, you'd believe, you'd believe in me, because ultimately Moses wrote about me. Moses spoke about me. He points to me. And so uh, really, when we read Moses in the right way, we absolutely see the Messiah of Israel, Jesus himself. Dr. Postel, thanks again for joining us. Uh, One final question for you. There are probably some listeners out there today who haven't yet made a decision to follow maybe God in general, and certainly there are listeners out there who have not made the decision to follow Jesus. Uh, Yet, some of them might really love the Word of God, Uh, or they may have heard about the Word of God, What is your advice for those out there who are listening right now that don't yet have faith? There there was a combination of a couple things that were very significant to me. Number one was to actually hear the stories of others who were radically changed by their encounter with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm. Up until hearing actual stories of people that had met God, and I don't mean obviously in the, you know, I see God with my physical sight, Mm -hmm. but seeing people changed radically changed by God. Uh, That was for me very significant. And then the other thing that was crucial for me was then to actually to start connect that with reading of scripture. And again, for me, being Jewish, I'll never forget the first time I read, you know, Psalm 22. And I saw the, you know, the caption says a Psalm of David. And I know that David lived 3000 years ago, a thousand years before Jesus. And I'm reading this Psalm and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is describing Jesus. You know, they're dividing his clothes, they're piercing his hands and his feet. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're mocking him. And I'm thinking, how is this even possible? And 
to me, it was this amazing adventure of searching the scriptures open-mindedly and coming to the conclusion that Jesus had to be the Messiah and then realizing more than just that he's the Messiah, but understanding why he came. And that was very significant because interestingly enough is that as I started studying and meeting other people, my conscience started to do weird things. Suddenly things that, that, that didn't used to bother me suddenly became acutely troubling to me. My lies, my foul language, my things that I just, I knew that were, were suddenly wrong. And I got this overwhelming sense of guilt. And then I started to develop a sense of fear, real fear of death, real fear, realizing and recognizing that God's a holy God. And then recognizing that the Messiah Jesus came first as a lamb. Mm. One day he'll come as a lion. He first came as a lamb. He came as our Passover lamb. He came as our day of atonement sacrifice. He was the scapegoat. He died in our place. He took my sin. Mm. And, and that was just, that was my journey. And so I would just simply say, meet and listen to the stories of others who've met the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and have come to recognize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and then just start to read the scriptures and, and with an open mind. And, and I do believe that God, God works powerfully through his word. Yeah. Amen. Well, again, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the, the Tove podcast, Dr. Postel. And if you're interested in seeing some of those believers that have come to faith. Of course, there's a lot of different websites out there where you can find testimonies of people who have come to faith. But specifically, I want to point you to the website called InSearchOfShalom.com, where we have multiple testimonies of our Jewish friends who, like Dr. Postel, have arrived at the conclusion, based on their study of the scriptures, based on God's work in their lives, that Jesus is the promised Messiah to Israel. Well, thanks for joining us today on the Tove Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Seth Postel as much as I have. If you're interested in listening to previous Tove Podcast episodes, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, tovepodcast.com, and a variety of other platforms.